Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of the Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Clive James, the poet, critic, essayist, memoirist, novelist, broadcaster, and all-round clever clogs. Clive, hello. You left out astronaut. I left out astronaut. I, I, I apologise. I spent all those years at Cape Canaveral to be forgotten. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's hard to remember your CV in one go, but. Clive, the first thing that everybody thinks about you at the moment is he's still here. Yeah, and the answer is only just. But that that answer is getting increasingly less credible. It's something I've discovered. It's called James's Law of Immortality. <laughs> is that people can't wait for your immortality to start. You better deliver on it. In the first stages of there being a threat that you might go under, you better go under because your credibility starts to evaporate if you're still around. I can expand on this theme, and I'm thinking of doing a book. The first, the first book about the necessity of leading a posthumous life, if you happen to be still alive but near death, I'm looking for a snappy title for it. But the truth is that uh, it's my fault. I should have always just said I'm feeling fine, which is long enough anyway. It's the polite answer anyway. Well, your new book, you know, alludes in its title to that as Injury Time. Um, yes, a collection. Giving myself ears. Well, I, I admire the, I admire the footballers when they're plugging away in Injury Time. But you, you have had, and I mean, you know, you as you write in the book, death didn't happen and the joke fell flat. I'm afraid it did, didn't it? <laughs> For a while, it was funny. Then people politely yawn. <laughs> Oh, you're still here. But it's it, but it's led to this great kind of like late flowering of verse. I mean, you're right. It's a good subject, yeah. And I'm noticing. I, I started noticing more almost immediately, as it were, when I got sick. Perception sharpened straight away, and has gone on sharpening. And now I can practically, I can hear the bees, I can hear the flowers, and. Uh, uh, it's uh, perception just gets better. There's no question. Do you think it's changed the way you've written poetry? Yes, I'm, I notice more. I, it's a kind of compulsion is to notice more. When you think, well, Christ, I've only got a few minutes, I'd better take, take in the beauty of that lily or whatever it is. You're compelled to. And maybe there's something going on, some mechanism. I'm not ruling this out. Well, a neurological? Uh, yes. Yeah, maybe the whole system is sharpening up. As a, uh, maybe it's a protective mechanism. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a joke. <laughs> It'd be a very bad one if it was a joke. But um, the short answer is that I, I'm, I'm, uh, I pay a great deal of attention, much more than I ever did. Mostly, I was talking all the time. When I was young, I didn't have to pay attention, and I didn't. People were paying attention to you. Yeah, that was it. That was my shtick. I did their talking for them. Can you imagine how tiresome that was to be? <laughs> <laughs> and do you think that, um, I mean, as Frank Kermode has a whole shtick about late style, I mean, yeah. do you think you've got a late style? Has your style I think changed? I think probably my late style is the only interesting one. I don't want to sound too humble here because it wouldn't be true. About as conceited as you get, uh, without being ill. But uh, I think I, I knew Frank. I've, 
and I loved him, in fact. Of all the literary critics, he was the one most like a poet. In fact, he was a poet. Do you know, he he had his poems, his manuscripts, all got lost on the way back from the war. And by God, I'd like to see them, you know. I have daydreams where somebody fishes up a leather-clad volume. <laughs> Secret poems of Frank Cahoyd. And did he stop writing after that? Stop writing poetry? He stopped. He never tried it again. Because uh, he was so much brighter than all the other academics. So probably he saw straight away that his future was assured anyway. Yeah. And, uh, and, of course, being a writer would have been a much more complex and chancy existence for him. And he was a... He was a born grandee. I mean, he was simply made to rule the roost. He was... Frank had a terrific act going on where he wasn't powerful because he was the most powerful man in the vicinity, whatever he did. Uh, I, I really did adore him. And uh, and he, he was beautifully tuned to poetry. If you heard him read it aloud, there were a couple of Yeats favourites he had, short Yeats poems, and uh, they were spellbinding when he recited them. I thought the world of Kermode. And your poetry that you're writing now, I mean, you describe in the book, you know, because if we, we know you're not very well, but you describe getting up in the night to write poems. And, to, I mean, does it feel a sort of compulsion? Do they kind of demand to be written? You feel a bit chained to the wheel, and especially when it's not happening. Well, I haven't written a poem this week, and I should. It's still a pretty de- devastating and debilitating feeling. And I'm actually right in the middle of one now. You've caught me on the harp. I'm writing a poem about Ovid in exile because it occurs to me that there's a bit of a tristia ex ponto going on here. I'm exiled from my real life. And uh, that bastard Augustus has exiled me to the Black Sea. What a subject, is it? Don't you find it? An endlessly enthralling subject. And of course, when he was in exile, that was the end of Ovid as the poet we recognise. Uh, the Randy Ovidian poet disappears. It's a good subject, a potentially very funny one, but I just can't get it right. And I had a crucial day yesterday, actually, while I was in the hospital. I thought, God, I know what's wrong. I'm doing it in couplets, and it doesn't want to be in couplets. If the, the demand for the rhyme is coming too early, that's the time to recast and to go to quadrants or beyond, perhaps even into free verse. It's a technical matter. It's something I've been working on for years. and But suddenly I know the reason why that poem is stuck is that I've chosen the wrong form for it. Well, that's, you, you do seem to have a kind of profound interest in form, but it's oh, unfashionably... Sure. You know, you write poems that rhyme and scan and make sense. You know, yes. um, as Bron Moore put it. But what what draws you to writing formal verse? I mean, there's one of the I think it's photo file in this book that has something like nine quatrains consecutively of you know quadruple A feminine rhymes. I mean, it's you know that's just it's one of those uh, proving I can do it poems. <laughs> yes, there's a wow factor. The great thing about writing a poem. It's like a motorcycle that's wearing its guts externally. It is, uh, it's a constructive showing off. You're not just proving you can do it, but you're getting an additional aesthetic thrill-making capacity out of putting the rhymes up there where people can see them. And it's quite hard to do, and everybody knows it is, even 
the real dullards, the, the ones who attack me for doing this stuff, they know it's quite hard to do. But it's not the whole secret. And quite often a poem will want to be free of its form, or fight its way free. And often the way that it tells you that is when it gets stuck. This answer is too long. The reason the it's, it's too long is you've asked the most fruitful and fascinating question. Why do poets do what they do? It's uh, why did Dante choose the Terza Rima for the Divine Comedy? Well, the answer is deceptively simple. The answer isn't that rhyming is difficult in Italian. Rhyming is easy in Italian. And uh, so he thought he'd get that out of the road by saturating the poem with it. Huh? Is that, is that the, the ease of rhyme in Italian as compared to English? Is that why you did it in quatrains? Yes. Quatrains are actually easy to write because in, in English, that third line will catch up with you. And quatrains are easier. Shelley managed it for the short haul. Yeah, for a short time. And you get a prize for, what was it, Triumph of Life, wasn't it? The Wild West Wind. The, 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 the West yeah, totally there's two of them. Yeah, it can be done in English, but it always draws attention to itself. And Dante, when he chooses to, can make you forget he's rhyming, which is quite a hard thing to do in Italian. I can go on for ages about that. In fact, something reminds me I did go on for ages about it. I wrote an introduction to that book, didn't I? Yeah, well, you have an afterword in which you talk yes, about it. Yes, it's all in there. I think it's doing reasonably well, that that translation. I'm glad I did it. I'm very glad I did it, because my wife is a world expert on Dante. And I, I was in danger of getting crushed by her example. Oh, did, that make, did it make you nervous writing? You bet. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> and, uh, but... Uh, she eventually got her okay. I could go on for too long about that, about rhyme. Sometimes I avoid it, sometimes I seek it. Sometimes I try to prove that I can do it. Other times I try to conceal it. There are every possible variation on this. But uh, deep under the, all those questions is one single question. Should a poem have a form? And the answer is it can't not. You are stuck with it. Even if you're doing something completely random looking, that will be a form. And uh, and it does better if it keeps its rules. I could write a book on this, and I never have, you notice? It's the missing book. No. But uh, there's a short book called, what's it called? It's right here, Poetry Notebook, in which some of these questions are raised. But my answers are endless, I warn you. Now I've got started, I'll go on for ages. Well, it's, it's a literary podcast, so you're allowed to. <laughs> you write in one of the poems here that you knew 60 years ago that poetry was something you wouldn't be doing yes. all your life. Yeah. I suppose one of the questions is, that, you know, who you write for as a poet. I mean, do you think of your own, you know, is poetry something that your readers are overhearing? You know, is it I think I write for generally literate people. I hope you won't be enraged if I include you in that. I but can I just could, about manage, yeah. But I, I gave you various almost invisible, inaudible tests on your way into the house and, <laughs> and rapidly decided and correctly that you're quite a well-read guy. And uh, one writes for those. A poet is someone who can't help writing for people who can't help reading. That's basically it. He's looking for another version of his fellow addict. He's, uh, no, he's looking for another version of himself. A fellow addict. You talk also in a 
couple of the poems, and in, in, in the first one, in which you do what many people don't get the opportunity to do in verse or otherwise, which is write your own epitaph. Yes. I'm do, some would say I'm doing that constantly. <laughs> but you say, you talk about going overseas to seek fame or yes. become famous. And, you know, John Berryman talked about love and fame being the two big things. I mean, how important you are famous, how important has fame been to you? It's, it's been crucially important strategically. It's enabled me to get a hearing for my work. It's a character weakness, though, no question. It's one I'm lucky I've got, and I've got an extreme version of it. Not quite as extreme as, say, Hitler's, but extreme. It seems to me perfectly natural that I should be standing up there and everybody should be listening. I invite you to, to judge for yourself just how ill that makes me sound. But I'm lucky to have it. I'm not shy about commanding people's attention. I'd like to think that I'm still capable of humility, but that's a different thing. But no, performing for a public is basic to my nature. I'm Sometimes I'm sad to say that and to recognise it. And maybe life would have been better for me and everybody around me if I didn't need that kind of reward and stimulus. But I do, and that's it. But that being said, I like what I do to have carry sufficient reward in itself to suggest that I might be worth paying attention to. You've sought to perform, to entertain, to mm. you know, to speak in so many different, as I said at the beginning, so many different sort of, you know, I mean, did it ever occur to you I should, I should stay in my lane, I should just, just be a poet or I should just be no, a critic? No, it doesn't naturally occur to me that I should stay in my lane. And when I'm having my version of the Robert Lowell type madness, I think of myself as an ice skater, for example. <laughs> Luckily, I know it's nuts at the time, but if there's a form of expression I'm not actually using. That feels unnatural. But to be as serious as I can on the subject, I'm blessed. I can actually do the things that I want to do, or I think I can. I can write a bit. I can't sing even a bit, although I had to learn in order to protect my my breathing capacity on television. It's a story I've possibly told too often, but uh, my TV producers said I had to have voice training because my voice was running thin on the second day of rehearsal. So I went off and studied singing a few notes, and immediately, it's the way the mind works, it's the way my mind works, I immediately thought, God, I could have done this. (laughs) That's that's the... Subtle madness is it sneaks up on you. You sing a few notes successfully and you start convincing yourself you could have been Caruso. (laughs) (laughs) But you did, actually. Another thing, along with Astronaut and Ice Skater, that I omitted from the introduction was that you're a lyricist. I mean, you've written a great number of songs with Pete Atkin. How does the business of writing lyrics differ from writing poetry? The first thing I should say about that is that I really am going to be leave the world fairly soon. Uh, not right now, I promise. And not before this I podcast goes. It would be a scoop for us, but not, not <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I, would, I would hang on to the tape if, that, <laughs> if I were you. That's my introduction to my answer, but I've forgotten what the answer is. They're such different approaches that I couldn't write a lyric now, even if I wanted to. And I think sometimes people might quite like me to. I just can't do it. That capacity seems to have gone. 
it's simple-minded. It's a much more simple-minded activity. And uh, there are technical considerations. A, a lyric is actually sometimes more intricate than a poem. But uh, what's the shortest answer? I owe I, I you a short answer for this one. It's not enough to say I don't feel like it. I just can't do it anymore. Or I, there was a time when I could not do it, and now I can't do it. It just seems to me that every poem now has to be personal. And the strange thing about lyrics is they're never personal. There's always something you're disguising. Uh, usually loving the wrong people is the thing you're disguising. I've got long answers for this, but the short answer is I can't, can't do it. I might try again, but I'm, my mood would have to change. Someone would have to whisper in my ear and say, listen, it's, the whole thing's a hoax. You really are immortal. And, <laughs> and be convincing enough. And I'll listen and I'll say, well, in that case... I've got time to write a few lyrics. <laughs> I'll do, I'll trust you, given that's so different. What did you make of Dylan getting the Nobel Peace Prize? You I was all for it, except that I, I thought Leonard Cohen was a bit of bet. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I said Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think they gave him that. <laughs> <laughs> they gave him that for literature. Yes, they? they gave him literature prize. Literature is that it's silly that it's called the prize for literature in that case, because the whole thrill of Dylan and Leonard Cohen is they're not literature; they're songs. The music is something else. But I was all for it. When I think of some of the people who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, some of the biggest bastards in history. (laughs) (laughs) Real no-talent slobs. (laughs) No, I think they chose wisely. You should name names. (laughs) I've got a list of them. On the fact of your your different hats, I mean, you know, you said you stopped doing Eric's new... You know, over the years, you've done quite a lot of stuff that's been quite kind of silly. Hmm. You know, the, the sort of jokey, introducing videos of Japanese stuff. Really and, silly. You know, yeah. Really silly stuff. And do you, did you ever feel, oh, this compromises my seriousness. Yes. You know, I'm the translator of Dante. I shouldn't be introducing Marguerite Bracata. Yes, you know. I, I did think that, and I, but I overcame it because I, I thought the objection itself is foolish. There's nothing wrong with being the clown in his suit of lights poised in the window entertaining the crowd at dinner as long as he's really doing something beautiful. Uh, I got that quite early on. Some of my favourite performers were clowns, and uh, that was true from an early date. In Singing in the Rain, my favourite musical, the one who never lost my attention for a second, quite apart from the sheer beauty of Sid Charisse, was Donald O'Connor. I thought, God, I love that. He's funny and he can dance. No, there's a question... Already buried by my answer, but I didn't think I was compromising myself by being a clown too. Some of my favourite people are clowns, although they don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a line in it. Actually, you say you t- you talk about yourself being one of these poems being cross gartered like Malvolio. Is there yes. a sort of thread of self reproach? I like Malvolio. Malvolio is one of Shakespeare's boldest strokes. Because that's the condition of the artist, the condition of the playwright. He's actually doing something foolish all the time. What an conception that is. Malvolio's humiliation. I do think that of Shakespeare. I think the world of Shakespeare and read him all the time. It's one of the great things, the blessings of being born into the English-speaking culture. The very best is right there in front of you. And you, you know it straight away from the first day. So that argument's over. <laughs> well, was it actually as a, that of the 
I mean, Shakespeare, obviously, but and yeah. I think you did a PhD on Shelley or started one. Yeah. I mean, who were the poets who kind of shaped your approach to, to writing? Almost all of them. And I now see Browning should have been one of them, but I've only discovered that in the last couple of years. I've only been reading Browning seriously for a couple of years and realising realizing it was much greater than I thought. And with any luck, you have a discovery like that every year or two. English literature is so vast. Brilliant. Yeah. I wonder how you came late to Browning. Did a friend come Big and tip stupidity. you Stupidity. <laughs> stupidity. Also, because he futzed around with the language to the point where someone was actually quite hard to say. And I never believed in that. Well, but, uh, in terms of that kind of really clotted stuff yeah. with men and women. Also, although I tried several times and very faithfully to read the long one. What's the long one? Sordello? Sordello. Yeah. Oh, that's a bitch. I found yeah. it hard. Oh, you mean The Ring and the Book, which is even longer. The Ring and the Book. Yeah. Sordello's different. Uh, the Ring it's and the Book. not as long, but... Really I found the song of the, the Ring and the Book quite tricky. But there are whole long poems now by Browning that I, I could bore you to death with, but I, I won't be able to because you know them. <laughs> How did oh, yes, you no, get on it? I won't be How did a young man like you get on to them, as they said? No, I, I had a teacher who was a browning nut, you know. <laughs> so you're always shaped by your teachers, aren't you? One of the other things that, that you, you have still been doing, you know, I mean, it was a, it's a year or two since you published uh, your collection of sort of DVD criticism, but, you know, when it looked like you really were at death's door, yeah. you apparently sat down and watched a lot of box sets, and it kind of, there's a sort of obvious school of thought that would say, Come on, man, you, you haven't got a lot long. This is not time to be sitting down watching putting, a good wife. You're you know? putting your elegant finger right on my chief strength. I'm not afraid of frivolity. Uh, I'm not afraid of the apparently frivolous. I thought reporting on the state of television again was important. There's the book, Play All. And, uh, and I did it. I don't have any fear of triviality. If I decide that it's interesting, then it's interesting. So the essential conceit behind it all, which you better have, because other, otherwise people will have it for you. And <laughs> you really got to, you don't have to shout them down, but you've just got to point out, look, I think it's serious, and therefore it's serious. Uh, and I've got this to say. So, uh, you mustn't be silenced by... You're in a fear that uh, the viewpoint you're taking is trivial. Otherwise, I would have been stopped long ago. Cambridge was full of people who've been stopped short by being overawed by their subject. Well, they should have spotted that most of the people they're being overawed by were themselves, at the time when they're creating, overawed by life itself. And that's what made them great. Can you imagine someone coming to Shakespeare and saying, look, you're far too interested in the wildlife in the hedgerows. <laughs> you should leave that to the wildlife experts. <laughs> yes, leave the low comedy. To... <laughs> you talk in, I think it's in the postscript of the book, about how your childhood enthusiasms are the kind of reservoir on which you draw. Yes. Um, I think it's in the context of the poem about, it's a poem about a sort of air battle. Yes. Which is uh, whose name I momentarily forget, but, um, but it's actually inspired by the cemetery for the American Airmen just outside Cambridge. There's a lot of them buried here; they never went home. And you talk about these childhood enthusiasms, this reservoir. 
I mean, what were your deep childhood enthusiasms that you've kind of carried through? I was always very interested in machines. Aeroplanes are just the, shall we say, the the tip of the surface. Uh, I was always interested in machines. And, of course, in World War II, there were a lot of machines about. You saw them all the time. But it was always clear to me that people made machines as well as making other things. My mother made beautiful dresses, for example. But There's a lovely poem in the book about her. That's my darning brick or a that's the smocking brick. Smocking brick. That's probably my best single poem, but that's me talking because nobody else is interested in smocking. <laughs> Unless I didn't know what a smocking brick was. But yeah, I read that poem. Now you do. <laughs> it's You're spreading knowledge a, in the world. A minor function of poetry. Uh, there was a lot of machinery about. Yeah. And I had a knack for being interested in it. I haven't got a knack for it. I have no mechanical skills. I sometimes think that's a bit of a deprivation. I had a great friend whom I adored, Philip Maver, his name was, and he could build a motorcycle. Well, I looked on in awe as part of the other human race, the one that can't build a motorcycle. Very definitely not. It's just human beings making things, making a world which is beyond people. I had a knack for appreciating that quite early on. Still got it, I think. I'm fascinated with what happens next. I mean, we're on the verge of space now. Not on the verge of it, we're in it. You know, it's happening already. For all I know, my granddaughter next door is going to be a space pilot. She thinks she is when she's driving my wheelchair. <laughs> she drives it up here and uh, up and down this hall at a rate of knots. I, I'm sorry to miss the next bit. Your memoir, I mean, you're talking about your childhood. I mean, you, you had a huge, huge hit with unreliable memoirs, yes. you know, which described your childhood in, in Colera. Yeah. One of the things that book did, which was very curious to me, it was very, very self-lacerating. You know, exposed yes. all of your vulnerability and your sexual anxiety and your fear and your humiliation and your shyness and the sort of things. You know, it was a very sort of self-lacerating book. Why did you... Well, some people still like that. point that out to me as if I hadn't noticed. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> but I mean, why, why, have you no shame, sir? Why did you make it Because <laughs> that's the way... It was an intuition that actually everybody underneath was full of these failings and false steps. A rather Freudian subject. Actually, he was more flawed now that we realise than he let on. Him too. No, I just... Uh, it was one thing, it was... a. Uh, it was a dramatic decision. It was based on drama. Failings and failures are inherently more interesting than successes. Anyone can be a success. <laughs> Turn on the television and you'll find it proved. <laughs> it said, happiness writes white. Um, so that was the inspiration. The self-lacerating was, was it. I had fun writing that book. And it occurred to me while I was writing, well, I wasn't supposed to be having that much fun. I sometimes recite bits and pieces out of, at lunch table. Hitchens was one of the first to spot that I was onto something. No, I, he <laughs> yes. encouraged you to do Oh, yes. <laughs> so did Martin Amos. They, they knew what I was up to. No, Perhaps, I mean, that's something that you, in this, this book of poems, you have this one very stark line. You just say, I found it difficult to be a man. Yes. I threw that in for shock. Yeah, it I, does have a... I thought if I throw that in here, it's going to scare the shit out of them. So I'll throw it in. <laughs> I found it difficult to be a man. Yes, I did, and still do. Yes, I did. For example, my doctor yesterday 
You know, they call them procedures now. In charge of the procedure, the one who's going to get inside my body and pull the stones out of my, what was it, whatever the thing is attached to the liver. Gallbladder. Gallbladder. Very, very impressive speaker. I could listen to him all day. What was I going to say about him? Now, he says a man, he's doing exactly what he should be doing, as far as I can tell. Maybe he's a frustrated piano player. But uh, my difficulty was that I still don't know what I'm for. I just hope to, to write the occasional thing that interests people. I keep going back to the war as a subject. The war was very big when I was a kid. The war was as big as the, big as the sky, especially in the Pacific area. It was your life. And I haven't thought... In subsequent years, especially after my father failed to come back, I often thought what kind of role I would play if that ever happened again. And uh, the only answer I ever come up with is writer. It's a big subject, because unless you, perhaps unless you have this feeling of inadequacy, of where do I fit, you can't be a writer, because you're actually trying to plug the gap, aren't you? Perhaps that's true. Hemingway was like that, I often thought. I don't just adore Hemingway and admire him. I sympathise. Because it caught him too late, the realisation that he wasn't fit for his job. And he had the wrong parents, or they would have told him, of course you're not. That's what makes you fit for your job. You're not. (laughs) Don't you get it? (laughs) He was... This shuffling giant that you are, of course you're not fit to be a writer. You're a unique writer. It's all the other writers who aren't fit to fill your ink well. I do sympathise with him and often think if I could just be there and say, no, no, don't do that. Don't pull the trigger. Anyone can do that. Hardly anybody can write. And then I'll just quote one of his own sentences to him. Strangely enough, what he died of was humility. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, he's, although he was, he was quite shameless with the way he caught approval and lean over people's shoulder and stick his finger down and say have you seen this bit? look at this bit <laughs> strangely enough he wasn't conceited enough that's the opening poem in the book you talk about you know it's, it's an inscription for a plaque back in the place you were born having made your life here I mean it was at 1962 you came over yeah. what is it that makes you want to go and be buried Courtesy. Courtesy. I owe Australia a lot. Australia made me, and they've got it coming. Because, (laughs) don't fool yourself, quite a lot of them resent the fact that our lot went away. That's what Jermaine, for one, and Hughes was another. They never got it. They didn't realise people were pissed off with them (laughs) for making it so clear that they were enjoying themselves. Well, it's, best, it's best to beat your heart ritually occasionally and say, oh, God, I miss you all. <laughs> no, I owe Australia that. And it's true. Australia was part of my luck. Being born and raised as an Australian during World War Two, that was luck. Also, having having come very, very close to dying, mm. they're not. Has that made... I mean, is it now less scary? I wish I could say yes. I'm not even sure how scary it is, but... No, it's no less scary. It provokes even more thought. I know that. And I feel quite lucky to be driven to such profundities. But uh, I don't want to be not be here. 
I'm too curious. I'm going to miss it all. I can't tell you how I feel about missing out on space. I flew on Concorde, which is closest space to space as you can get in a civilian airliner, over the Red Sea at 50,000 and more than 2,000 miles an hour. I think that's the relative speed to the Earth. It's 2,000. It's 1,200 certainly, but I think it works out at about 2,000. It's quick. And the sky is curved and blue. And I thought, Jesus Christ, what comes next? Well, you know, something does. Yeah. You have the human beings. They create. Anyway, Clive, James, thank you very much indeed. So thank you. I'm sorry I could have... My answers rambled a bit.